Our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, who you, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I meet and might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and the striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, uh, it was really cool hearing from our seniors, and in particular hearing kind of what they're going to go on to study and, and focus on. When I started in college, I started as a philosophy major, uh, but when I realized that I, that meant I was majoring in unemployment, I decided to find something else. Uh, but I really enjoy philosophy, but I, I learned along the way a couple things. One is that philosophers can be really annoying. Um, like, it, it takes a really specific kind of person to debate for an hour whether reality is actually a simulation that's been programmed by an alien race somewhere, right, in another parallel universe. But that's a real philosophical debate uh, that is happening and has happened for a long, long time. Uh, so that's kind of annoying, right? But there's another kind of annoying that philosophers can be, and this is kind of what interested me, is that philosophers tend to raise questions about things that we spend a lot of energy and time trying not to reconsider and examine. Uh, in fact, the best, the best philosophers are not the ivory tower philosophers. They're not the ones that ask these maybe interesting questions, but that have very little bearing on our lives. The best philosophers are what I like to call rock-turning philosophers. Now, here's what I mean by that. Remember that kid in the playground? No matter how old you are, you, you remember the playground. Remember that kid in the playground who all they did was walk around and turn over rocks and just look at the gross stuff that was underneath 
those rocks. Like she would go around the playground, she would kick a rock over so that no matter how happy or fun the veneer of the playground was, she could remind you that just underneath the surface there's spiders, there's worms, there's death, there's decay, there's all kinds of creepy things. That's what the best philosophers do. And Kohelet is like that. Kohelet, who we just heard speaking in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He is called the preacher or the teacher, depending on your translation. Uh, But he's like a rock-turning philosopher that forces us to look at things we probably would rather not. And as Pastor Tom mentioned last Sunday, Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book uh, of the Bible. It is a, a genre of literature in the Bible, wisdom literature. And so alongside of Proverbs and Job, Uh, and to a certain extent, the book of Psalms. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book that builds on the story of the Old Testament, the history of the Old Testament, in light of what God has done, to poke and prod us along to live more wise, more faithful lives. That's what Kohelet in his own way is doing, but he's doing it in really uncomfortable ways. He'll do this kind of rock-turning with several aspects common to all human life throughout our series. But this morning, he's kicking over the rock of pleasure. And and by that, I don't just mean erotic pleasure, but pleasure in general. And there's three things I want us to see that Kohelet kind of teases out in in chapter 2. But I'm not going to tell you what they are so that you keep paying attention. But we will look at three things. If you have your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes. Use your table of contents if you have to. Chapter 2. While you're doing that, remember Kohelet, uh, who might be King Solomon, uh, might be someone else. We don't really know for sure, but we know he is a kingly royal figure. He calls himself a son of David, meaning he's in in, in the kingly line of David is the idea. David, by the way, right? The most famous king, the most important king in the Old Testament. And Kohelet is looking for wisdom. He's looking for meaning in life under the sun. This is his phrase, under the sun. And the best way I can think to understand what, or translate what that phrase meant for Kohelet, we might call today like a secular approach to life. That is life without real reference to God or to the divine or to the supernatural at all. It's not necessarily an outright rejection of God or, those, or, or, or the miraculous. It's more the idea that we cannot know ultimate answers for sure We don't have access to big T truth, so we try to find meaning in the here and now only, okay? We explore life under the sun to see if we can find identity and meaning and satisfaction there. That's what Kohelet is doing. So he says, well, what about pleasure? What if I fill my life with every pleasure imaginable? What meaning can I find there? Okay, that's that's. And then he writes this in verse 1, chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. I said and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I made 
I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So Kohelet lists all this stuff he does. Here's the big idea. He uses all of his money, all of his resources, all of his connections, everything to surround himself with pleasure. Notice all five senses are indulged to the max by Kohelet. He grows fruit and vineyards for wine to taste. He raises livestock to butcher and to eat. He plants gardens, beautiful landscapings, trees to see and to smell, like he's got his own botanical garden in his backyard. He brings in his own personal choir to listen to, men and women, so they can sing Summer Lovin' from Greece together or whatever, whatever he wants. He can have them sing. And then he brings in concubines, which if you're not familiar in the ancient world, uh, concubines are, are like second-class wives for really wealthy men. So this is sensual pleasure to round all of that out. He fills his eyes and his ears and his belly and his bed with more beauty and sensual pleasure than most people would know what to do with. In fact, remember, for the original reader of this book, most of whom couldn't sniff the kind of wealth that Kohelet takes or uses to pull this off, he comes across as like the 1%. He's unattainable. This guy is able to do what most humans have been unable to do for most of human history, which is almost whatever he wants. There's no pleasure he cannot have. There's no food he cannot eat. There's no beauty he cannot see. There's no leisure he cannot buy. He has arrived. He's made it. He's checked every box. And the people reading this who had little to no food security, who didn't have land, certainly not enough to plant a garden or to raise more than a handful of livestock if they were lucky, who might only hear great music on a high holiday at the temple in Jerusalem, they would read this and think, man, if I could just have a tenth of what this guy has, I would be okay. Because for them, just like for us, pleasure promises a lot. It promises a whole lot. This is true on a, on a cultural level today, but also on a more personal level. So culturally, big picture, what fascinates me about this part of Ecclesiastes is that this experiment in pleasure that Kohelet does, we have been doing the exact same thing. So culturally, think about this with me, culturally in the modern West, we have essentially given up on the idea that there is a supernatural reference point for all of life. People can have an opinion or a belief about the supernatural or the divine, that's fine, but those, those are beliefs, they are not agreed upon facts. We are very much under the sun in our approach to meaning and happiness as, as a culture, okay, which is very unique in human history, actually. And of all the things we have tried to replace God with to find meaning and identity and satisfaction, pleasure might be number one. And we've gotten really, really good at pleasure. Better even than Kohelet, honestly. Think about it. We have more food than we know what to do with. For the first time in human history, most of our country, for example, not, not all, but most, can get food when they need it. And generally, you can get what you want when you need it. 
Like global trade means I can go and buy a strawberry pretty much any time of year that I want to. Even Kohelet couldn't do that. There's no end to what we can put in front of our eyes. There's sports, there's streaming services, there's movies, there's shows from all over the world. I can watch those things anytime, anywhere. I can play any song from any era, anytime. And I can do it in Dolby surround sound if I really, really want to. I can do that. And there's fewer boundaries than ever to our potential sexual relationships. And not only that, but we're not to be too dystopian here, but we're beginning another digital revolution of artificial reality where we can augment and even replace physical pleasure with digital ones in ways that would have blown Kohelet's mind to know that was possible. We're really, really good at this pleasure thing. Better than anyone in human history, I would guess. And even if we in this room listen to that and think, well, I don't, you know, right, I... I don't maximize pleasure in all those areas. I I don't do what Kohelet's doing. But if we examine our lives, we too might find that we turn to pleasure to solve our problems too. To give us meaning, to give us identity. Now pleasure, by the way, is not all bad. And we're going to come back to that idea. But it does promise a lot. And it can be a powerful idol in our lives. A powerful distraction. And if we're honest, you can see the temptation, right? At the end of a hard day, we don't often reach to contemplation or relationship to restore our sense of meaning and purpose. We reach for ice cream. We go to Disney Plus. We go to Cab Soft. We go to distraction. When we fantasize about getting through the school year or a busy season at work or whatever, we think about summer vacation, what we're going to buy with our money, or frankly, just Thirsty Thursday. It's like, can I just make it there? And again, this is not all bad, but when we turn to these things to give us purpose in life, to give us ultimate meaning, we are just small cute Kohelets. We're training ourselves to rely on these things every day to bring us a sense of identity and meaning. It's a different scale, but it's the same experiment. And probably with the same result, which is where Kohelet goes next, which is that pleasure eventually lets us down. Okay, this is verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. But then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So notice, Kohelet, he keeps his wisdom in the midst of this experiment. He points that out to us a few times. I think that's his way of saying, I kept my right mind. I still kept the question, can I find meaning here in front of me? And at the end of it all, he says, I, it, this, this whole experiment in pleasure did not deliver the meaning I hoped that it would. It is still hevel. It's that Hebrew word. That tra- it's translated meaningless or vanity. Okay, the image behind it is an image of smoke or vapor. He says, like, pleasure, the second you reach out to hold it, it, it just slips through your fingers. It doesn't stay. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't work. 
He doesn't elaborate specifically on how pleasure fails, but he does give a few hints. First, he talks a lot about toil. Did you see that word over and over, toil? We're going to talk a lot more about that idea next week. But for now, just know that in Hebrew, that word toil is kind of a bad word. It means effort through trouble, effort through pain, not unlike what it means in English, right? You don't toil at something you like. You toil at something hard and difficult and maybe even painful. Kohelet is showing us something really critical here. He is saying pleasure becomes toil when it's the only thing you live for. And we know this. We know this now from, from neurobiology, like the cycle of addiction, addictive behavior. Is that even the seeking after pleasure or a high becomes toilsome and enslaving. The more pleasure you seek, the less pleasure you receive over time. And the more stimulation is required to get that same effect, to get that same hit, and, until eventually the pursuit of pleasure becomes so all-consuming that it's not even enjoyable anymore. It's just work. It's just toil. It cannot satisfy anymore. And in many ways, I think we're seeing this dynamic writ large in our culture. Now, you may disagree with me on this because I, I'm not totally sure, but you know, what's interesting to me is I think about um, even when I was in seminary, how I probably would have preached this sermon. I probably would focus a lot more than I just did on how unfulfilling of life pursuing pleasure ultimately is. And we need to keep saying that. But my sense is culturally, we're starting to move beyond that. It's like we've tried Kohelet's experiment and found it wanting society-wide. Now, the, the one, piece of, one example I can give you around this is there's a, some studies done, some survey work done that were published in The Atlantic And the article was called The Sex Recession. And essentially, people are having less sex than ever. Despite a preponderance of a a low view of sex, and there's now apps and technology and ways to meet people simply for that reason. And now you could look at that fact from a traditional standpoint and say that's a good thing. And, And in a sense, it is. But it's not like people are replacing that with pursuing meaningful, committed relationships together. Because marriage is down too, dramatically so. We just, it's, it's as if we aren't trying anymore. We're not looking for, for that kind of pleasure or satisfaction. It's losing its appeal. And instead, what we're finding is despair. A rise in despair. It's like, well, pleasure, I can't even distract myself from this. It's not delivering like it's supposed to. Now, Kohelet told us this would happen thousands of years ago, but here we are. Pleasure, it, it cannot ultimately, it does not last long. Okay, that's, that's the first thing Kohelet points out. It, the, the, it becomes toil. The second thing he points out, and he does this kind of later on, but it's that pleasure has no answer to pain. This is perhaps the greatest weakness to living for pleasure, to building your life on this. It has no answer to pain. Uh, it and Kohelet, like I said, we'll point this out later, but even under the best of circumstances, life is incredibly hard. I don't care who you are. Life is incredibly hard. It's very difficult. And it does, no matter how much pleasure you can have, all it takes is one devastating diagnosis, one loss, one death, one divorce, whatever, 
to completely undo you. And, and here's the deal. And some of you in this room, you don't need me to tell you this, but when you experience that kind of earth-shattering pain, that you cannot throw enough pleasure at that. It doesn't work. You cannot do it. You cannot run away from it. The spell that pleasure casts is so easily broken by pain. Like that. It's smoke. It's, it's vanity. It's meaningless. A spitting in the wind is how Eugene Peterson describes it. Under the sun, pleasure inevitably dead ends on us. We will encounter something along the way that takes away right, that, that hit of pleasure. And you won't be able to get it back. And that leads to despair. And then where do you go? Now what do you do? There's another, perhaps more philosophical way of asking that question, which is this. Why do human beings in particular have this seemingly inexhaustible appetite for pleasure that this life seems completely unable to quench? Why do humans in particular find life so difficult to be content with as is? Even someone like Kohelet who has it all. Why is that the case? Okay, you know, I just got a dog. I know I don't want to talk to you about it, but I will say this, right? We give her treats to train her or to get her to stop biting us or whatever. <laughs> and she never does what humans do. She never looks at that treat and then looks up and says, what's the use? I'm just going to want another one. It's not going to satisfy me. Okay. She's content inherently. No one has to teach her that. But humans don't do that. We don't do that. Why not? Why are we so inconsolable? <laughs> okay, C.S. Lewis, I think, puts this better than anyone I know. He says this in The Weight of Glory. He's a writer, a Christian writer. He says, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, and here you could substitute the word pleasure, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself... They turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Now, I don't know if Lewis was reading Ecclesiastes when he wrote those words, but he might have been. Because in his own way, Kohelet is making this exact same point. But you have to pay really close attention. Okay. He's hiding something here for us to pay attention to. Notice, he says, I, he plants a garden full of fruit trees. What does that remind you of? Except here there's no forbidden fruit. There's, there's no limits. In fact, he says, whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from myself. If you remember, there's another garden, right? Where someone sees something and desires it and they take it. Okay? And after all his effort to surround himself with beauty and pleasure, all it is is toil. It's hard work by the sweat of his brow is the idea. Now, if you're familiar at all with Genesis 1 and 2, which Kohelet assumes that you are, you can see what Kohelet has done. He has made his own garden without God, and the pleasure runs out. He can't do it. He can't. But he knows that you know 
that there's another garden that we've seen along the way. A garden of delight. A garden of God's delight. Where the beauty never ends. See what I mean? The scent of a flower. The echo of a tune. The news from another country. It all points to Eden. The Eden garden. Because here's the lesson the Kohelet is, is, is weaving through this experiment. If you worship pleasure, it will betray you. But if you follow pleasure, it will bring you back to God. Because pleasure ultimately leads to our creator. Pleasure, all forms of pleasure, taste, touch, sound, smell, sight, they are all God's idea. We, in fact, we cannot experience any beauty or pleasure apart from him. We can't do it. Which is why when we try to do it, it doesn't work. This is why if you, re- if you really pay attention to Jesus, when he talks about his kingdom reality that he and he alone can bring into our lives, he constantly points out that pleasure and beauty and design, those are easy for him. I don't know how else to say it. But you'll, you, you see it every now and then, right? It's like Jesus shows up at a party and he turns hundreds of gallons of water into wine like that. No problem for him. What could he do with an ocean? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> when people are listening to him teach in the wilderness and they run out of food, he takes a couple loaves and fishes and he feeds 5,000 people and he keeps teaching the whole time. No problem. When he tells us, those who would follow him, not to worry about tomorrow, what does he do? He points to the immaculate beauty of the lily of the field. And he says, you know, Solomon, he references Solomon when he does this. He says, you know, Solomon didn't have half of the beauty this has. In all his glory and splendor and his wealth, he couldn't touch the beauty that your father has hidden in the minutest detail of creation that you walk by and you don't even look at. You think he can't take care of you? This is Jesus' point. He may never come out and say this, but at least as far as I can tell, Jesus constantly hints that the human capacity for pleasure, as insatiable as it may seem, pales in comparison to God's capacity for delight and pleasure. Think about it. There's beauty, there's delight, there's music, there's sound, there's color that we cannot even physically experience in the universe. We know this. It's as if it's just for God. It's just for him. Kohelet's lesson is not that he wanted too much and it let him down. It is that he wanted too little when Eden was there all along. And God intends to make everything Eden including you and me, and to invite us in if we are willing to follow him there. But we have to prepare for that reality now. It's part of our calling now. It's to prepare for that. In two specific ways I want to point out. The first is I want us to consider fasting. So in the formed life journals that we're using as a church family right now, that is our focus discipline is fasting. And there's lots of things you can fast from, and for medical reasons you may not and shouldn't do food. But I'm going to focus on food. What we're hoping for is to participate in this discipline together. And I can't 
go into everything about fasting, but we've written several articles already in the Formed Life that you can read that will catch you up to speed. But for now, just remember that fasting is not just about training us to say no to things in ourselves. It is that. But perhaps more importantly, it is to remind us that there is beauty, that there is food, there is bread, there is wine, there is pleasure that we know not yet of, but we one day will. And there is meaning enough there to get us through the pain and difficulty that real life throws at us as Jesus himself understands. So consider fasting. Perhaps for this season, while we're in this series, fast once a week, one meal a week. And take that time instead to cultivate Eden in your heart. Stop trying to bring Eden through your behavior and allow God to cultivate it within you. That longing, that appetite for a different kind of world. He will build that in us. Okay, so consider fasting. That's number one. Second, this morning, consider eating. So we're going to respond today with our senses, because there's a reason that when Jesus teaches us to come to his table and to practice communion, that he left us bread to eat and fruit of the vine to drink. When we take communion, we not only remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, that we do that, but we're practicing for a feast. We're practicing for a supper, that ultimate, beautiful supper when Jesus comes again. And what we do is we take the elements, we touch them, and we smell them, and we taste them, and we eat them, just a little bit, to remember that Eden is hidden everywhere around us and within us. And Jesus is coming to reveal all of it to us. So in just a minute here, I'm going to pray and we're going to take communion. If you are a follower of Jesus... I want to invite you to come in just a moment. There's stations up here in the front. This one to my far left is gluten-free if you need that. We also have two self-serve stations there in the back of the room if that is more comfortable for you. And as I said, if you're a follower of Jesus, just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come and and partake. If you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I I want to thank you for being here and trusting us with your time. Uh, I would ask you to, to remain where you are and to consider what you've heard. You, you honor us and our tradition by, by not taking of these elements. Uh, and perhaps it's time to consider where pleasure has let you down and to see where God may be speaking to you through this morning and, and perhaps even to ask him to speak to you again sometime this week. As we all prepare our hearts for these moments to come, let's bow our heads and pray. Fathers, we come to your table as we practice this Eden meal, speak to us. Holy Spirit, remind us that you did not have to invite us to this garden, but you do. And that as we go, as we leave this place, we take Eden with us, inside us. Holy Spirit, make us an Eden people. Even in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, please come.